Well, it's that time again for us to dive into the Word of God together, and as always, I'm so very excited to be able to to lead you in a hopefully a worthwhile study uh, and uh, to bring you to a um, the meaning of the text. Hopefully, it is the right meaning of the text, uh, and also to bring about an application for us that will. Uh, drive us to be more like Christ uh, this week. Uh, You may be expecting to hear a message on Galatians. Uh, We are, I think, at the tail end of chapter 1, where we're going to be uh, examining uh, those important verses, but not this morning. Uh, My apologies for that, but as you know, I uh, was away last week's uh, teaching at uh, Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, and uh, it was called an intensive course. It's intensive because they take a 16-week semester and they cram it into one week. Uh, so uh, being a two-credit course, that's 25 hours of teaching, which means five hours a day. And if you can imagine speaking for five hours a day, then you know uh, how weary it can get. Um, I didn't even want to talk after that. Just go home and be quiet, if you can imagine. But I do thank you for your prayers. As I say, it was a very profitable time, um, and I was received well. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, I taught how to counsel from wisdom literature and the Psalms. They are starting a, a new degree, a master's in biblical counseling. So I was assigned this. Uh, I was to use the genre <clears throat> of biblical wisdom and hymnic literature to help hurting souls in the church. That's what uh, what I was called to, to teach on and help the, those who are hoping to get a degree in counseling learn about. And uh, you ought to know I've taught counseling from the Psalms many times before at my uh, during my days at Southern Seminary in uh, Kentucky, but never biblical wisdom. So when I was given the task or the topic by the seminary last year, I dove deep and immersed myself in this particular portion of God's Word, and it was rich. I'll tell you that for sure. And it enriched my soul beyond my expectations. Uh, I came away more informed about how to apply this part of God's Word to my life. And then, of course, how to teach future counselors how to apply it to the lives of their counselees. And I've, of course, already started using it in my counseling as well. Uh, With all the preparation that uh, I had to do the week prior to my trip and uh, while I was away, of course, actually teaching uh, five days a week, I had little time to actually prepare anything in Galatians. So um, I, uh, I decided that it would be the better part of wisdom not to try and pull a couple of all nighters this weekend and prepare something out of Galatians. I certainly didn't want to come up here and risk the chance of not being prepared. Uh, If there's one thing I learned way back uh, in the early days of my internship with John MacArthur, it is to never get behind the pulpit unprepared. You don't want to guess. That's tragic. John was absolute about that, and uh, that's a, a principle I have kept with me Below these 30 years. So what I thought I would do then is to preach on a portion of what I taught this past week and trust that you will be as enriched 
by the material as I was and as I saw the students were as well. Uh, so, with that in mind, a word about biblical wisdom before we get to our specific text. Three books in the Old Testament are designated as wisdom literature. They are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> so what is unique about this literature? Well, it's scripture for one thing. Make no mistake about that. Hebrew wisdom has a strong relationship with the rest of biblical literature as we would expect, right? It's God's word. And it mentions nothing, of course, of God's election of the Israelite nation or its great covenants that find ultimate fulfillment in the Messianic age, as the rest of the Old Testament books do. But you can be sure that Solomon and Moses and the prophets all say the same thing about God, about Yahweh, their God. They all ascribe to him the same attributes and actions, and they make strong appeals to the fear of the Lord. The element of wisdom that distinguishes it from the rest of the Old Testament literature is really just one of emphasis more than anything else. Bruce Walke, eminent Old Testament scholar, argues that both Moses and Solomon established the rule, the rule of Yahweh, Israel's covenant-keeping God, each in his own way and that the theology of Proverbs complements the theology of Moses and the prophets in its own way. And that while it's true that the nature of biblical wisdom literature puts its greatest emphasis not on the nation of Israel or on its covenants or on its sacred traditions, but rather on the individual believer and his regular personal experiences in everyday life. His life, nevertheless, is not divorced from the social covenant relationships within the community of faith. Oh no. Wisdom literature was bathed and came out of, it was born out of Israel's religion, Israel's faith and covenant faith in Yahweh. Biblical wisdom, as with law and prophetic writing and hymnic literature, refers to the same Lord with a shared faith, a shared hope, a shared anthropology, epistemology, and authority, and it makes the same spiritual and ethical demands on the readers. We can say with confidence that the writers of biblical wisdom drank from the same spiritual well as Moses and the prophets. No question. Therefore, biblical wisdom writers anchor their wisdom in, the covenant, uh, in, the, in their covenant God, in God's word, the Torah, and even call their, 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 they call for a reverential respect for God within the covenant relationship. I might also add that wisdom books actually claim divine inspiration for their own writings. This is a wonderful thing. Solomon, Augur, and Lemuel in Proverbs claim that their writing is the very word of God. They all describe their writing as Torah and also as commandments. Those two technical terms, by the way, for God's statutes and law. Job quotes God directly, so there's no question there. 
And the sage of Ecclesiastes, as most of you know from our a year-long study of Ecclesiastes, says that his book is ultimately the words of one shepherd, and that is a reference to God himself, chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Because wisdom is grounded in special revelation, all right, the observations that it makes about creation, relationships, nature, animals, wickedness, it makes through the lens of special revelation. The sage picks up the lens of scripture and puts it on in order to see general revelation in life the way he should, reality the way he should. Biblical wisdom gives us the right epistemology to have. How do I know what I know to be true? They tell us. It helps, really, it helps us interpret the world correctly and to know what reality is, as we saw time and time again with the sage of Ecclesiastes. And this is so important when it comes to living by faith in what God says. So much of what we see taking place in the world around us contradicts the word, doesn't it? And we'll see shortly that it does in the life of Job as well. So we live by faith. We don't live by sight. We don't live by what we see. We don't trust what we see. We trust what we know to be true from the Word, which is sure not to prove true in the world or in experience, which is why it's not always easy to live by faith and not by sight. We get our ethics, then, from the Word of God. Finally, biblical wisdom is linked with covenant faith. It's linked with covenant faith. As any part of the Bible, as with any part of the Bible, I should say, biblical wisdom works on the heart because the heart then affects behavior. So biblical wisdom must be internalized, just like, just like any other part of God's Word, by God's saint. We need to not only read it, but study it and then ingest it and find it sweet to the taste as the prophets did so that As John says in the New Testament in his uh, first epistle, the word abides in us and we abide in it. We internalize it. A person could actually memorize the entire book of Proverbs and still lack wisdom if if it did not affect his heart. That's what I'm saying. You've got to internalize it. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the ability to do that. Now, this genre that we are call, uh, calling biblical wisdom has three subgenres or smaller categories within it, and we find them, again, Proverbs, Joel, Ecclesiastes. And we're getting close to our passage, but still I want to make a little bit of a, a delineation between, between the threes, just so you understand what is unique about them. Proverbs is called didactic wisdom which is really wisdom that teaches. It's, it's, in, a, it's in a form of teaching. The, the sage takes the position of a teacher, or better, a parent, and the person receiving it is a student or the son. That's the relationship. It's a teaching, instructing kind of relationship. So this kind of wisdom is designed to teach lessons from real-life situations that we all know and are well familiar with. We read the book of Proverbs, we, we understand the illustrations he gives. They're, they're true today. And that's what makes it so highly relational. These pearls of wisdom are put in the mouth of a farmer. I'm sorry, a father. 
farmer too, but father and mother, they're not put in the, in the mouths of professors and professionals. Also, the way this literature puts the lessons across is also very relatable. Proverbs packs a, a, a condensed form of truth often in, in vivid and in, in, in picturesque ways that are easy to commit to memory. They're short, they're curt, they're terse. They use pictures and sometimes humorous ones. Proverbs is on-the-job truths. They're portable, transportable. You can take them with you. All, that, uh, all in all, then, they are much easier to remember than propositional truths that go on for a sentence or two that you find in the epistles. The English word proverb is from the Latin proverbum, which is a compound word made up of two words. Pro means on behalf of, and verbum, of course, means word. So a proverb is something on behalf of a word or in place of a word. It is something that takes the place of a word, in this case, an explanation using pictorial language. So they're rightly called proverbs. They also have, at times, more than one application. Peter and James apply the same proverb, Proverbs 10:12. love covers a multitude of sins, but each with a different application. 1 Peter 4.8 uses it to stress brotherly love. James 4.20 uses it to restore an erring brother. So these short, pithy, but condensed truth sayings, they also call for immediate action. They not only give truth, but they call for action, which is why it's wisdom. Wisdom is applied truth, right? Not just truth, not just knowledge, but it's applied knowledge. If you're not applying the knowledge, you're not wise. So they come ready to apply, and with the implication to do so immediately. I mean, if you, if you get a command from God, how long do you think you ought to wait before you obey? Right? Isn't that, that just, just asking that question, the answer is, is, is implied, isn't it? So they, they come ready with application and, and, and an implication to apply it immediately. They also give absolutes, make no mistake, we don't really have time to get into this, but they don't make generalities. They don't speak of general things that are true, uh, they speak in absolute terms. Dedicate a youth according to, uh, to what his way dictates, and even when he becomes old, he will not depart from it. That is an absolute, not a generality. Proverbs, don't, does, uh, Proverbs do not make generalities. They promise absolute truth. Uh, there's more to that, though, to understand. We just don't have time to get into it. But let me get on to the other two books. Job and Ecclesiastes are not didactic wisdom. Rather, they're called reflective genre, reflective wisdom, uh, which Job presents in long dialogues of a suffering man with dialogues with others and with God himself. And Ecclesiastes presents his reflective wisdom in an autobiographical account of the sage and his experiences from well-familiar real-life situations with a goal in mind to see if, if there's any lasting gain in life under the sun that doesn't have God at its center. So it's reflective. 
The aim of both of these books is to try and understand how wisdom works out in real life. That's why it's reflective. So while Proverbs affirms, for example, that God's righteous order it affirms God's righteous order in the world, reflexive wisdom, or reflective wisdom, rather, uh, denies its reality in the world. In other words, reflective wisdom says, I know what God says in his word, and I know it's true, but I don't see any proof of it in a fallen world, which is why we need to live by faith in what we know to be true rather than live by sight in what we see. So the sage says that he knows, for example, that there is a judgment that awaits the good and the wicked at the end of time, and that we should live in light of that. He knows that. Now, how does he know that? You cannot come to that observation or conclusion by simply just observing life, by observing general revelation or what's around you. No, that comes from his heart of faith, it comes from his epistemology, from what he knows to be true. And there are statements like that all over the place. So we know that wisdom literature is not founded on general revelation or human observation. It's not built or founded in natural theology. No, it is founded on God's word, his revealed truth, special revelation. Make no mistake about that. Now, with that in mind, we come to our passage this morning, which comes from the book of Job. So you might want to find your way to the book of Job. Um, and the question that we want to spend time answering in this reflective wisdom uh, is this. Is God just to decrease suffering for his elect? a very heavy question. Is God just to decrease suffering from his, for his elect? Now, Job, the book of Job, um, we come to this book in order to understand God's just use of evil. Uh, and there is God's just use of evil, as the title of my message states. God's, God is just in his use of wickedness. And of course, that's the question we want to answer today. Just the thought of it behind that little title, I think, is disturbing to a lot of people. God and evil, they're two opposite things. As far as I know, one has nothing whatsoever to do with the other. God is good. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. In him, there is no darkness at all. He's order. Not chaos. He's love, not hate. The suggestion that God in some way uses evil just, well, it just doesn't sound right. It would seem to impugn God to call into question whether he's really good, you see. If you're thinking that, then you would not be the first person to think that. There have been many theologians who grapple with this. There is even a branch of theology dedicated to answering the question, where does evil come from? It's called theodicy, which seeks to establish God's goodness in light of the fact that evil exists. Oddly enough, the book of Job does not deal directly with theodicy or solving 
this issue. It actually assumes, of course, evil exists. That is, it has the capacity, this evil, to destroy. This is energy that has the capacity to destroy. And no one today among us has to assume this. We know that to be true. There is evil in the world. There is this energy that that is used to destroy. We see calamity. We see destruction, the result of corruption. We see the heinous treatment of an individual, of murder, theft, terrible mistreatment of children, and the list goes on. But more astounding is the evil and the wickedness that Christians experience at the hands of depraved people and systems, the bad things that can grip them health-wise as well. A.W. Pink had thought long and hard over this very subject, and he gives a perfect description of what we're talking about. I published it in the bulletin for you in case you want to look further at it, but uh, just the Initial words that he gives are important for us to rehearse together. He says, quote, A child of God oppressed, suffering sorely, often driven to his wit's end. What a strange thing. A joint heir with Christ, financially embarrassed, poor in this world's goods, wondering where his next meal is coming from. What an anomaly. An object of the Father's everlasting love and distinguishing favor, tossed up and down upon a sea of trouble, with every apparent prospect of his frail boat capsizing. What a perplexity! One who has been regenerated and is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit daily, harassed by Satan and frequently overcome by indwelling sin. What an enigma! Loved by the Father, redeemed by the Son, his body made the temple of the Holy Spirit, yet left in this world year after year to suffer affliction and persecution, to mourn and groan over innumerable failures, to encounter one trial after another, often to be placed in far less favorable circumstances than the wicked, to sigh and cry for relief, yet for sorrow and suffering to increase. What a mystery! What Christian has not felt the force of it and been baffled by its inscrutability? End quote. Well, that's well put. And it makes sense. I think we understand perfectly. We can relate to what Pink is saying. Many of us have asked these same questions. These are the very questions that reflective wisdom is concerned with. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's a good thing because we're very concerned with it too especially today and all that's taking place around us. We look to the book of Job this morning to answer this perplexing topic <clears throat> that is um, a reality for us from time to time in varying degrees. Now we might ask it another way, is God just to decree suffering for the blameless? Now, when I say blameless, I am speaking about a believer in Jesus Christ who carries no unconfessed sin. That's what I mean. I don't mean anything more than that. I don't, I'm not talking about somebody who's, who's arrived in his faith. That's not possible. We're not perfect this side of heaven and never will be. Just, about, just talking about a person who, who is clear in his conscience he has no unconfessed sin as, as far as he knows. He's not carrying around anything. He's right with God. Those here today might not question whether sinning believers fall prey to calamity. That seems 
to make sense, maybe, to you. God so ordained that we reap what we sow. That's a principle. And we've all experienced that principle. It's all come true in our lives. You sin, expect there to be consequences. That just is the nature uh, of, uh, of God's ordained order. That's what should take place. Nothing to question there. And the evil that we slam into head-on, in this case, well, would be our doing, right? We sin, we reap the consequences of our sinful behavior. There are natural consequences, there are even spiritual consequences to our, our behavior, our decisions. I think we know that, we understand that, we accept that, we've, we've seen it work out in our lives. And of course, the way to remedy it is to ask God for forgiveness, to repent, and to train ourselves never to sin the same sin over again. That would be the way we deal with stuff like that. But what's before us this morning is the evil situations that obedient Christians suffer, which they do not generate on their own, but they, but, but they come upon them. Now, it won't do any good to blame it on Satan, who obviously brought Joel's calamity upon him, the the death of his family, the destruction of his livestock and all his possessions, and, and even his health and the quality of his life was destroyed. <clears throat> if you read carefully, God gives Satan permission to do these things. Job did not ask for this. And Job didn't warrant this by any kind of sinful behavior. <clears throat> God moved his protective hedge about Job just a little so that Satan could do his destructive work in his life. That's what it says in the first two chapters of the book of Job. Now, once again, we have evil epitomized in Satan as one of God's means, a tool of God. God does not commit wickedness, but he uses it, so it would seem. Either way, it just doesn't make sense to us. Is God just in using evil, in using wickedness? It is really the larger question behind why do Christians experience bad things? And we will answer this question in our study this morning. Is God just to use wickedness in the life of the blameless? What do you think? Let's see. It is a question that's more common among Christians than you might realize. Yeah, many of those who come to our biblical counseling ministry, for example, uh, have a rather weak theology. That's true of a lot of them, uh, um, as, as many do in American Christianity. And they have never thought deeply about most theological concepts, certainly not this one, until it's their turn to slam into some tragic situation in life that causes them great physical pain and suffering for no apparent reason. As far as they know, they, they haven't sinned against the Lord. Their conscience is clear. They've examined themselves and they've found nothing. But here they are, in the thick of it, moaning, groaning in pain, suffering with no end in sight. They have, they have their own Job experience, and, and they don't know quite what to think. Where is God in all of this, they ask. 
Why am I enduring this? Why doesn't he heal me? He can. I've prayed through tears and many sleepless nights and my situation just gets worse. And they even get to the point where they may raise doubts about God's goodness and justice and fairness. Oh, yes. They will question his right really to rule them, essentially. But more on that later. This was the case with Job's three counselors. If you're familiar with Job's story, you know that these so-called friends of his were really false friends and certainly not worthy biblical counselors. And between them, Job and God, do you have the unworthy counselors, you have Job and you have God. The book presents actually three major views of, of this topic, three major views that actually answer this question. Two of these views are wrong. Only one is right. Guess which one is the right one. <laughs> you don't have to guess uh, which one is the correct view. God's view is. So let's take a look and how these people thought of these, uh, these events and this whole topic, and how Job struggled with it. There was, first of all, the conventional view, the popular view, the accepted view of the day when it came to all of this suffering in the life of a person. It argued that bad things in a believer's life happen only to believers who sin. That's it. That's the view. If you're experiencing prosperity in your life, it means that you have God's favor and blessing. If you're experiencing tragedy in your life, however, it means that you are carrying around some kind of unconfessed sin. You have sinned against God and he's punishing you. You better repent, repent and get straight. And that's the idea. That's the view. Repent and be right with God. Now, it is a reductionistic view, to be sure. It's an oversimplification of, uh, of biblical truths. We, we hear it, and right away we know, well, something's not quite right with that view. We know that bad people in this world who experience little, of, if any, calamity in their lives, and plenty of saved people in this world who suffer greatly. So right there, would fly in the face of this conventional wisdom. Our experiences would tell us that this is not quite right. Something's missing here. But it was the conventional view of the day. When I say conventional, I don't mean biblical wisdom. I mean this was the wisdom of the elders passed down from generation to generation. Bildad, one of the three counselors that counseled Job, shows the wisdom that he and his other two colleagues give to be founded on human tradition of past generations much like the Pharisees' tradition that Jesus condemned. It was neither absolute nor scripture. This is what he says in Job 8, chapter 8, verses 8 to 10. He says to Job, Ask the previous generation and pay attention to what their ancestors discovered. Will they not teach you and tell you and speak from their understanding? Rhetorical question. The answer is, Hey, listen, they have the right answer through trial and error over years and decades. They have produced tried and true advice, and this is what it is. 
according to what they're saying, you're in sin, you're being punished, you need to repent. There are plenty of Christians and Christian counselors who fall back on conventional wisdom of the sages, by that I mean of, uh, of uh, past uh, generations of, of secular wisdom. The bottom line is that their conventional wisdom has no room for suffering in the lives of the blameless. None at all. They were right in one respect, you reap what you sow. That's true. But we, we also find times in our lives where we reap what we don't sow as well. And Job finds this out. That reality threw them for a spin. They have no answer for that. The, the problem Job, Job had with this conventional view is that it didn't square with his experience. He was reaping something he didn't sow. Remember how God describes Job at the beginning of the book? This is very important. Twice God describes him this way. No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. That's God's description of Job. Job knew he hadn't sinned, and his conscience was clear. He was, in this respect, blameless. So his situation breaks the conventional mold. It can't be right. It makes no sense. Their view doesn't explain what happened to him. He rejects conventional wisdom that came from the tradition of the ancestors. But what that led Job to conclude about God and God's treatment of his covenant people was, well, just as wrong as the, as the counsel of his buddies. Job concluded, and here's the second view, Job concluded that God was simply not just. It's the only thing he could come up with. God was not just to bring such calamity upon him, such undeserved calamity. I've helped many Christians who were in this very position, some who have encountered unexplained and sudden hardships, have actually said that they feel as though God had abandoned them. That's how they feel. And they're honest. And, and they say that. He doesn't answer my prayers. They're left wondering if, if he even cares. And then they take the short step in anger to accuse God of not doing the just thing, which is to rescue them. So, we have these two views, and they're out there. And there are even some hybrids of them, of both. <clears throat> but we come to the third view, because that's the most important one. That's the correct view, which is God's view. And God will... Educate Job later, beginning at chapter 38 to the rest to, to, to chapter 42. He educates him about it, about the correct view, and, and in so doing, he deconstructs these two erroneous views. And this is what he maintains. The bottom line is God reserves the right to use in just ways wicked and evilness in the lives of the blameless. He reserves the right to use wickedness in the lives of the blameless. 
The good sovereign uses wickedness. He uses this evil energy that destroys, that is destructive. He uses evil happenings, suffering, tragedy, and the like in the lives of the saints who are blameless. And the book of Job is about how Job learns this truth and then grows to become a mature leader as a result in his community. I want to show you how the book develops this, okay, in just the brief time we have left. God first addresses Job in chapter 38 to 40 to make the point that his sovereign rule includes chaos and evil and all kinds of wickedness that find expression through people, institutions, even natural disasters. This evil God has decreed and he sustains, but he also restrains evil by his goodness. So, for example, God makes a reference to the sea in chapter 38, which represented to the ancients chaos and disaster, danger. Oh, yes. This is what he says. Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst from the womb? Speaking to Job now. When I make the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket, when I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I declared, you may come this far, but no farther, your proud waves stop here. Well, this fine bit of Hebrew poetry shows that God created the sea, containing, c- containing it with certain boundaries. He contained it, and he sustains the sea by clothing it with clouds and swaddles the sea in darkness. And he also restrains the danger and energy of this natural force by commanding it to come only so far on land, but no farther. And when you understand that the sea was to the ancients, uh, what God tells Job here then is that He has decreed disaster and chaos, which is what the sea represents, that manifests itself in people's lives. That would include, of course, natural disasters, political, national, global, and biological wickedness and disasters. The sea represented all that. In fact, the darkness that God swaddles the sea with also represents darkness all throughout the Bible. I might also point out that the sea represents the prideful and arrogant in the world as well that God maintains and sustains but also restrains by his goodness. God's reference here to the proud waves. Stop here. Make that clear. It's a It's a symbol for the proud and the arrogant. So Job learns that God sustains evil. But he also restrains it at the same time. Evil cannot do its job um, and has no free will. God, God dictates all of that. He actually preserves all that is life-threatening to human existence, but in a, in a, in a, in a restraining way. Now, who would ever have thought this? Such a foreign idea, but it's true. There is a measure of freedom that harmful and chaotic energy has within God's ordained restraint. And to prove this point, the narrator goes on to use several paradoxes in the chapter. For example, God preserves light, 
which is a symbol of goodness, and also darkness, which is a symbol of wickedness, verses 12 to 15. This is chapter 38. God maintains needed rains to sustain life, but he also maintains destructive tempests, which destroy life, verses 22 to 30. He maintains both the weak and prey animals, as well as the wild animals that hunt the prey, verses 39 to the end of the chapter and on into chapter 30. God helps Job to understand that as God maintains these natural paradoxes in life, so he also maintains the spiritual paradox in Job's life over which Job is struggling, namely that the blameless and the sinful often experience the same thing. Or, many times, the blameless experience tragedy while the sinful get away with their sinfulness and prosper. Paradox. In the same way that God gives wisdom to the war horse and to the eagle to keep them alive, God also sustains chaos and disaster evil happenings which he uses in the lives of the blameless. God sustains, maintains, and restrains everything in life over which Job becomes anxious. Everything in your life that you become anxious over, things that tempt you to become anxious, that's under God's power. That's under God's purview. He maintains it, but he restrains it, and he uses it in the life of the blameless. God's second address to Job in chapter 40, verse 42, focuses directly on man's inability to restrain wickedness in order to save himself. And we read in chapter 40 of God's challenge to Job. I love this. He challenges Job to do the impossible. Here is verses 11 to 14, chapter 40. He says, Go ahead, adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and clothe yourself with honor and glory. Pour out your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Go ahead. Look on every proud person and humble them. Trample the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust. Imprison them in the grave. Then I will confess to you that you, uh, that your own right hand can deliver you. So God extends this challenge. Obviously, Job, upon hearing this, is, is dumbfounded and and silenced. God's point is that you have no power over these evil things in life. No power whatsoever. You cannot dictate them. You cannot control them. So then God explains that he is the one who actually has absolute command over injustice and the wicked and the prideful and the arrogant. Beginning at verse 15 and continuing to chapter 41, God makes reference to behemoth and leviathan. You've probably heard those two titles before. These are considered the most powerful land and sea creatures known to man. Now, sadly, we do not know exactly what they were, but because they represent great strength and power, both in the desert and wastelands and also in the chaotic sea, they represent evil and devastation and also the proud of this world. That's what they represent. They were real creatures, but they represent all that is evil and wicked and chaotic and destructive and arrogant and prideful. And God rules them in chapter 41, 
first 11 verses. He says that they may be, verse 34, king over all the proud beasts, and man may be powerless to restrain them for his own purposes, but God has absolute sway over them. He keeps them, he sustains them, and he restrains them for his use. Well, we might we might expect, as we might expect, as a result of Job's hearing the word of God, he is faithful. He, his faith is his greatly informed. Job, of course, repents. He grows. He matures. Here are maybe at least three ways in which Job grows in his faith. First of all, those irrational, nonsensical, indeterminate, and indiscrutable elements of life, like the lightning and the storm that Satan used to destroy Job's life, as well as the wicked intentions of prideful and arrogant people. They have a place and a certain freedom in God's governance of human life. And God uses them for his own ends. And one of those ends, listen very carefully, is the good of his people. Christians should not misinterpret these as God being disinterested in them. Quite the contrary. God restrains evil and uses it in the life of the blameless for their good, as only he can. Number two, Job learned that we cannot limit God to our self-serving understanding of government and justice and what is good. His governing and ruling hand goes far beyond the traditional reasoning that smiles on good and punishes the evil. You know, the conventional wisdom. No, God defines justice. And we have to go to his word in order to understand what it means. Number three, in order to rule and subdue the earth and please God by the way we live our lives, we must live in humble dependence upon God. God has granted people limited power. Yes, limited power. No one has the ability to create a world free of injustices, though. Oh, no. Christians have the ability in Christ to rule and subdue that part of the earth over which they are responsible. But even in that case, they don't possess absolute rule. God has not given us the ability to to govern absolutely or to secure absolute justice. That's his department. Well, these were all valuable lessons to Job, as you can imagine. And as a result of what he learned, he became qualified, as I said, to become a spiritual leader to his people, even taking on a priestly role in making sacrifices on behalf of his three counselors, his false friends, as God commanded him to do. So how does this help us? How does Job help us? I mentioned that Those who come to our counseling ministry struggle with their own suffering when they know that it's not the consequences of their own sin. They're at a loss. In fact, a lot of times, just, just not knowing why they suffer is almost as bad as suffering itself. They may say, though, yes and amen to the fact that God is just and God uses even wickedness in the lives of his saints and and they may be maybe mature about it initially, but eventually, 
as their suffering is protracted over weeks and months and years, they they start to rethink and even doubt what they know to be true, and they become convinced that they should not have to suffer. Why am I suffering so, they ask themselves. We see Job slipping into this period of doubt right after chapter 2, and from chapters 3 to chapter 38, the majority of the book, Job drifts from his great statement about God, about receiving both uh, of good and calamity from God, and he begins to question. He begins to doubt. He doubts God's justice. And he mishandles his situation. And this explains why many people today have tremendous difficulty receiving trials. James says in chapter 1, we are to receive them with joy. And that very rarely happens. They fall somewhere between the conventional view of Job's counselors and Job's view. That's where they are, somewhere in the middle. And they may agree that divine discipline can manifest as suffering in the lives in their lives when they carry unconfessed sin. Sure, don't get me wrong. I mean, if I commit sin, I reap what I sow. That's just fair. It makes sense. But then nevertheless, they struggle over experiencing suffering when their conscience is clear. Now what do I do? Consequently, they question God's justice, not so much in theory, but you can be sure in practice. They will not say so in so many words, but their attitude and their actions betray them. They may complain or even be angry with God and move from being impatient to hopeless. And make no mistake, even complaining about your divine lot in life robs God of the right to rule you the way he deems best. As Job did, so many Christians have their own ideas of what it means for God to treat them justly. And it doesn't include suffering and tragedy and calamity and and mistreatment at the hands of wicked, prideful, and arrogant people. And that brings us to the New Testament where I believe this truth finds its greatest application, perhaps, in Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6 makes a great promise. For I am confident of this very thing, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. Hmm. What a promise. Paul speaks of how God works in the lives of believers, in our lives, in order to bring us from point A to point B. Now, at first blush, many Christians praise the Lord for his work in their lives. Amen. God is doing a good work in me, and he will make me more like his son, and he will accomplish this. But they don't realize the unavoidable implication of this verse, that God will do whatever he deems necessary to mature them, even if it calls for suffering and calamity, as Job can attest. Well, putting it that way kind of puts a different spin on things. God restrains evil by his goodness, but uses it nevertheless for our good. And that truth is strange to many Christians, but God decreed in eternity past that evil would exist as a result of the prideful intentions of his created beings. 
And he is so sovereign that he can use the wicked intentions of evil men for his purposes to bring about the good of his saints, and he does. He does. Do we not see this to be true even in the life of Christ? Peter preaching says, This Jesus of Nazareth was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God's plan. Not really theirs. Oh, that's what they wanted to do. But ultimately, this was God's decree. As a result of Jesus suffering unjustly, God then exalts Christ, and he saves a people for himself. Beloved, you might not question the main point of the book of Job. And you might believe that God justly uses wickedness and evil happenings for the good of his saints. You believe this. Make sure that you believe it in practice. Receive well God's lot for you. Think of this, okay? This is by way of encouragement. Use a little logic here. God being perfect and holy, created before the world was born, your personal lot your personal lot, what it would entail, a perfect mixture of tragedies and triumphs, justice and injustices, all to bring you from depravity to glory. And your lot has to be then the best possible lot for you there is. If God is perfect, makes no mistakes, is omniscient and knows all things, even the contingencies, the billions of them, of all the ways your life could have worked out and will finish the way it has so far is the best it could have ever been because God decreed it. That's true. God, knowing all contingencies, worked out the perfect lot it couldn't be any better. And if you had the opportunity to edit it, you would only make it worse. I am confident of this very thing, Paul says. He who began a good work in you will complete it by the day of Christ. And our Father in God, we are grateful for your goodness to us, for this word that you have brought to us through the book of Job, your servant, to know that something so ancient, written so long ago, yet your very words from your mouth that you have preserved down through the centuries to wind up in our hands would have such great impact in our lives. We pray we would take to heart this message, this message from Job. And as we go from this place, we would leave confidently, confidently knowing that no matter what takes place in our lives, that you have ordained our lot and that our lot is perfect for us. Find us rejoicing, not only in this day you have made for us, this Lord's day, but find us rejoicing in every day you have created for us, O God. And find us rejoicing in your goodness and in your lot, including the trials, including the suffering that comes not because of sinful actions or thoughts, but just because. May we use these as platforms to grow, to depend on you all the more, 
and to minister to others with a loud voice. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.